Good morning, good afternoon, good evening around the world. My name is Doug Brunke. I'm the founder and CEO of Global Chamber. We have a very special Globinar podcast today featuring the topic that many of the global tribe are extremely interested in, in that's cross-cultural communications. And we happen to have the world's number one expert. At least she seems like the, mo the most impressive person I've met. Uh, somebody who has studied it inside and out. She has her own company, Japan Intercultural. She's expanded beyond Japan even. She knows this topic inside and out. Her name is Rochelle Kopp. And Rochelle, we really appreciate you taking the time today to talk about this topic, especially since, not to date this recording, but it's the first day of the Olympics today, which you know many people would think is somewhat great and some might think is somewhat inauspicious given you know the all of the, the drama and the, the issues you know not unlike for instance some of the cross-cultural things that happen in, in business right sometimes right, right, it seems yeah. like it's a disaster but it, you, but by understanding and communicating properly maybe it all works out in the end and our fingers are crossed for this olympics as well thank you for joining us today well glad to be here thank you You've you've taken it upon yourself to become an expert on this, not just in the last few years, but really your entire career. And, and I'm wondering, um, as I look back at what you've been able to do, I think in your bio, it talks about how you had been working in a Japanese company. And at some point, something clicked with you, it seems that this was something that you wanted to dedicate your life in and, and become such a, a deep expert. What, what about the topic fascinates you and, and, and how have you kind of gotten to where you are uh, given your expertise? Well, I think there were kind of two stages in this and well, I've actually maybe three. And so the first stage was a general interest that I had in Japan and Japanese business that started when I was in high school, my hobby was doing artwork and I was fascinated by Japanese art. I grew up in Chicago. The Art Institute has a wonderful collection of Japanese art, including um, lots of beautiful ukiyo-e prints. And I took classes in an artist studio and there was a Japanese artist who um, worked there and her artwork was wonderful. And she was a very interesting person to talk to. I had several friends who were Japanese American and I would go to their houses and their parents were really nice and they had lots of like cool Japanese things around. So I kind of got intrigued with Japan. And at that time, Japan was um, really very active in the United States. And I had seen somewhere, you know, Pacific Century on the cover of a magazine. And they said that there weren't very many Americans who spoke Japanese. And I thought, oh, well, if I learned Japanese, it would be really cool and interesting and it could be useful for a future career. So that's how I got started with it. And I had done an internship in Japan during college, which was an absolutely fascinating experience. And then after college, I went to work for a consulting firm in my hometown of Chicago. And a very interesting thing happened the first week I was there. They knew when they hired me that I was interested in Japan. And so they invited me to sit in and observe on a sales meeting that the principals of the firm were having with a potential Japanese client that was visiting Chicago. Now, they knew that I had an interest in Japan and that was enough to get me in to observe the meeting. 
However, it wasn't enough to prompt them to ask for any advice from me on how to run the meeting. And so I sat in on this meeting and it was basically like watching a train wreck happen without having any ability to do anything about it. So what the situation was is that they, um, these Japanese potential clients were visiting Chicago, but they had a very tight schedule. And so the only time that they were able to come in and visit our firm was at lunchtime. And they had decided to have a working lunch, which as you know, Japanese don't really do right? That they always have eating be separate from business and eating is a time to form personal relationships and have, you know, small talk and get to know people. So none of that, they had a working lunch. Now, typically in Japanese culture, if you were going to have a working lunch, because occasionally it will happen, or if you would have kind of a meal sort of adjacent to a meeting, typically it would be in a bento box which would be a nice lacquer box and it has the food laid out in a very nice way, but it's something for each person that's artfully arranged. And you could do the same thing in an American context by having a nice little catered box. You know, a lot of um, restaurants will do that for you. And even Panera Bread will have something that has, you know, the sandwich and the cookie and the, the apple and the chips and it's nicely kind of arranged. You know, something like that works fine. But instead of something like that, they had make your own deli sandwiches. So oh there was a massive platter of sandwich bread. There was a platter heaped with deli meats. And there was a big fat um, vat of very mayonnaise coleslaw and a vat of very mayonnaise potato salad. And they're like, okay, help yourself and make your sandwiches. And the look of utter confusion and disgust on the faces of the Japanese was, was you know, I can, will never forget, right? So right there, they were not off to a good start. Now the consulting firm that I work for was um, founded and run, well, still is, they're a very successful firm, um, but they were founded and run by two Northwestern professors. And the firm used technology that was based on the research that they had done in their academic work and they'd spin it off into a commercial enterprise. And so what they did for companies was a little bit complicated and it involved introducing some basic operations research type concepts. So this is not something that's easy to understand even in your own language. And, um, excuse me. <clears throat> and so it's something that if you were going to be doing it with people who are not native speakers of English, um, you would want to take particular care. Now, they did realize that it might be helpful to have an interpreter. However, rather than hiring a qualified interpreter, they hired one of their MBA students who happened to be from Japan. Oh, boy. And they did not give him a prior briefing on what was going to be presented so that he would have an opportunity to prepare, but rather they expected him to be able to interpret it right off the top of his head, you know, just cold. And as you might imagine, this didn't work particularly well. 
and it was slow and he was having trouble and it wasn't going well. And when that happened, um, one of the two principals kind of visibly showed his annoyance and frustration, which again is kind of a no-go in Japanese culture. So I'm watching the faces of the Japanese from the back of the room and I can tell that we're never gonna get any business from these people and they made the worst possible impression. But I was helpless because my Japanese wasn't good enough for me to be able to jump in and try and help. And as I said, I hadn't been consulted ahead of time because I could, could have helped them avoid the, the make your own sandwiches debacle. And I said to myself, okay, if I'm gonna do this Japanese thing, I better learn more to be able to be taken seriously and help people avoid situations like this or be able to jump in and help rescue them. Because if not, I'm gonna be like I am right now I'll be in the room, but then I can't do anything, which is worse than not even being in the room. Um, the word in Japanese, um, chuto hampa, comes to mind. And I'm not even sure how to say that in English. Chuto hampa means like you're halfway there, but you're not good enough, and it's actually worse than nothing. It's kind of like ha ha you know, half done kind of thing. And so I kind of felt like I'm a chuto hampa, and I better learn more or else I'm going to be completely useless. So that really made me think, okay, if I'm going to do something with this Japan stuff, I better actually do something with it so I can be taken seriously. So that was kind of um, part of what led me a couple of years later after I had gotten some nice consulting experience under my belt to then go back to Japan and get a job in a Japanese company. And that was really fascinating. The firm I worked for was a large Japanese bank that had been very domestically focused for its entire history. But due to changes that were happening in the markets, it was the bubble period and the particular bank type that they were was making a lot of money during the bubble period due to um, they had monopoly over certain um, types of business areas that were working well. And, they were rapidly expanding. They decided to go global. And they had opened offices in London and Paris and Luxembourg and Rome and Hong Kong and Kuala Lumpur and, and Bahrain and Mexico City and Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, um, Atlanta. You know, they were all over the place all of a sudden within the space of like a couple of years that they set this whole thing up and all of a sudden they were employing bankers you know professional career bankers in all these cities around the world and they had hired a bunch of non-japanese into the head office i was one of them and really were not very prepared for managing these non-japanese and the non-Japanese were not very prepared for working in a Japanese organization. And, you know, I felt that I was fairly well prepared for this new job. I had studied Japanese in college. I had taken courses on the Japanese economy and Japanese society. You know, I've learned a lot about Japan and had done an internship in Japan during college. I thought I was fairly well prepared. But I was finding myself saying, oh, what is going on here in a lot of different situations because things work so differently than any organization that I worked in previously. And I could see that the various non-Japanese employees were having a lot of um, you know, 
confusion about what was happening and what was going on. And so I realized that there were a lot of challenges. Also, I saw that the Japanese who were having to manage the non-Japanese were often finding it very difficult as well. They were equally as frustrated. And being someone who likes to read, I decided to try and do some reading or learn something. That's what I do in life is when I don't know about something, I go and try and read about it. Um, and this is before the internet, so you couldn't Google it. So I went to the library and the bookstore and tried to read about Japanese organizations and non-Japanese working there. And there really was not very much on this topic at the time. At the time, there were starting to be books about how to do business with Japanese, but they were always aimed at the Western company that was going in and doing a distribution agreement in Japan. So you know, fly to Japan for a few days, negotiate and leave kind of thing. And so that was the level of the information that was out there. And I said, that's not enough for when you're trying to operate in a Japanese organization. You know, in my situation, I was in a position that was newly created and I was supposed to be making things happen and getting things done. Well, how do you get things done in a Japanese context? It works differently. There was no guidebook. And so even though I tried to, to find something and I ended up just learning a lot of things the hard way and making a lot of mistakes to my ever, you know, sort of patient boss um, who would try and help me understand where I had messed up. And after a while I thought, Japanese companies are rapidly expanding around the globe. It's just not the one I'm working for. It's a whole bunch of other ones too. And they're setting up factories all over the place and they're buying companies and there are gonna be a lot more non-Japanese and Japanese experiencing the same kind of challenges that I and my colleagues are, are, are facing. And I thought if everyone else has to learn it the hard way, the way I am, that is a lot of pain for a lot of people. So I thought, well, this is perhaps some place where I can make a contribution. And if I can help spare some people some of the pain that I've had to go through, then that could be a worthwhile contribution that I could make to the world. So that's really how I got into this area. It's awesome that you saw that. I, I was thinking about, you know, that it really took, you know, you stepping back a little bit and seeing that, you know, this is something that impacts a lot of people rather than just solving your own personal issues, right? With understanding it and being effective. Cause I know my own personality is, it's like, I just want to understand how best to be as effective as possible, but not take it to that next level. So kudos to you for seeing that overall need um, and the world is better for it. So thank you. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's, that's great. So you, you finished up at the bank then? Well, like what happened then with okay, there? So at some point you, you, you moved into academia, I believe, right? Weren't well, you, you know, well, well here's, here's the story. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I worked at the bank in Tokyo for two years. I had always wanted to get an MBA. So I went back to Chicago and I uh, got an MBA okay. at the University of Chicago. Uh, While I was there, I started to do independent research. I had a you know, sort of an independent research project with, a, you know, working under the, a professor um, where I started to look at Japanese multinationals and whether they had different issues or did things differently than American and European multinationals. So I did an international comparative survey 
where wow. I sent I sent questionnaires and back again, this is pre-internet, so it was all snail mail. I sent questionnaires to um, multinationals in the US, Europe, and Japan, and got people to answer questions about their practices in the, in the international human resource area, as well as their challenges. And I was able to document that Japanese firms were indeed doing things differently, that in particular, they tended to send more expatriates abroad Yep. than American and, and European multinationals were. And if you kind of look at, which I did, the history of multinationals, early on, so we'll say, let's say in the 70s, American multinationals had the same issue where they were just send tons of people abroad. And they eventually moved into bringing locally hired people into um, key positions in their overseas operations. And so as if since Japanese multinationals kind of got a later start, they were still in this uh, mode of primarily sending their own people. But there isn't just a time lag difference. Also, there's the issue for Japanese firms of how they manage human resources, um, how they run decision making, which all tend to favor having people from the center go out to different locations, because that's what they do in Japan as well, actually, too. Um, and so they kind of started treating um, Japanese, I'm sorry, the, the overseas operations, just like their Japanese domestic operations, that it's all centralized in Tokyo or, or Osaka, and then people go out from there. So I, anyways, I, based on this research, I did an academic paper. It was published in an academic journal. And I also started to do a lot of um, kind of um, interviews with Americans working at Japanese firms in the U.S., as well as Japanese managers at Japanese firms in the US. And on the basis of that re academic research and then the more qualitative research, I ended up doing a book. Actually, it was two books. They were kind of twins, um, or I guess we call them um, fraternal twins. And one was in Japanese and one was in English. The English one is called The Rice Paper Ceiling, Breaking Through Japanese Corporate Culture, where I talked about Japanese multinationals, what was different about them, what are their challenges. And then if you are a non-Japanese person working in a Japanese organization, uh, how can you be effective and what are the chances to be able to rise to higher levels in the organization? So I did that while I was had a, another consulting job after business school. So I kind of started that project in business school and then continued it while I was working a consulting job. So evenings and weekends, I'd be working on my book project. And then when it was ready to all be published, I realized that um, you know, it made sense for me to go out on my own, that there would be consulting opportunities that would flow from that. And that didn't really work within the structure of where I was working. I was working at a specialized consulting firm in a completely different area, intellectual property. Um, and so that um, it didn't make sense to try and do my thing within their structure. I really needed to go out on my own and to do things um, sort of my way and do them effectively. So that's when I started Japan Intercultural Consulting. So that was start, started in July of 1994. I discovered that it was just um, a few days after Jeff Bezos started Amazon. <laughs> Like three days afterwards or something like that. Because, you know, this year they talked about the anniversary. And so, yeah, um, about what right. it was. And yeah, exactly. So just very shortly after he had started Amazon. And um, 
when um when we um first started the firm the focus was in the united states on japanese firms and um started out because i was based in chicago working with a lot of um, japanese auto parts manufacturers and then okay. auto manufacturers, right? And so we've got lots of those in the Midwest. And so I've spent a lot of time in, in factories and um, which have, you know, kind of very fascinating um, cultural issues because they're places where people, you know, from the two cultures work together extremely closely, right? Um, so yep. that was the start. And then as time went on, we started getting hired by electronics firms by pharmaceutical firms, by Japanese um, trading companies and banks in the United States, um, machine tools, um, you know, games. So lots of different um, industries, but um, still auto is a, is, a, is a key sector for our firm. And, and then that included, time, did that include then helping with factory floor issues? And because you, you basically started out at more at the executive level, right? Of kind of how kind of one of those old style of somebody comes in, you have a meeting, but that what you're talking about there is really some significantly, you know, organization wide issues uh, that you were right, dealing exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. we ended up um, working on things like those. And so, yes, doing a lot of work with people on the factory floor and wow. doing a lot of work with the management teams and factories. Right, so the people supervising the people on the floor. So, um, from from you know from executive work all the way down to factory floor work, we kind of work with all different levels of organizations. Only Japanese companies to that point. Well, uh, initially it was just Japanese companies, and then as time went on, we also started to do work with non-Japanese firms that were selling to Japanese companies or that had Japanese operations. Because as I said, kind of initially back, like you know, sort of the late 80s, a lot of the foreign firms in Japan were using distributors. They'd fly and set up their deal, fly out. But over time, more and more foreign firms started their own operations in Japan, which means they were hiring lots of Japanese people. And so then you have a lot of the mirror images of, you know, with Japanese firms, it's often Japanese managers managing people from other cultures. But then you have people from other cultures in Japan managing Japanese, which is is um, has kind of a mirror image set of issues to it, right? And so we do a lot of work with that in that area. And then over time, we opened up branches in different locations. So in 1999, we opened up a branch in Japan, focusing on working with um, Japanese firms headquarters as well as with foreign firms Japanese operations. Um, we also opened up a branch in Europe. And so my colleague, Pinilla, um, coordinates the work there. And so she, I always joke that she's like my, my sister who happens to be British because she's like, she's like me and, 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 um, in so many ways. And she um, worked at, for Mitsubishi Corporation, a large Japanese trading company for many years, both in their London office and at their headquarters in Tokyo. So she and I have had kind of parallel lives in a lot of ways. And so she, um, runs our European operations. And so there we work with a lot of European firms that are doing business in Japan, as well as with Japanese um, companies operations in various parts of Europe. And we also have a team in Latin America. And so there are a lot of Japanese factories in Mexico. And so we have um, also a specialty in work, or expertise in working with 
um, Japanese um, factories in Mexico and some of the issues that happen there in the shop floor environments. Um, and so Sarah on my team is trilingual in English, Japanese, and Spanish. And so you can imagine that that comes in really handy for our work with clients in Mexico. Um, and we have a great team in Mexico, as well as we have um, people in um, Brazil and also Argentina. Um, so we're able to help uh, with Japanese firms in various different locations. Um, and so also we in, in Asia, we handle a lot of Asia stuff out of Japan because um, we have um, experts on um, China and India and um, Southeast Asian countries in our Japan office, but also we have um, someone in the Philippines and someone in Australia as well, and also someone in New Zealand, so. Okay, so you do other um, uh, country cultures as well? Well, yes, well, you know, in two different ways. Originally, and all the ones that I just listed were people in different cultures, different countries working with their culture and Japan interface. So our team in Mexico works with how do Mexicans interact with Japanese culture? How can Japanese interact with Mexicans? Our team in Germany does how to work with Germans for Japanese and how to work with Japanese for Germans, right? And so in each place, we'll focus on that kind of cultural interface. Or in a lot of cases, we have things that go several ways. So for example, um, we have one, um, client that is um, doing R&D and they're doing it in three different locations, the US, um, Netherlands and Japan. And so with our local facilitators in each of those locations, we have the same training program that we're offering to all of their people. So all of the people on the global team are getting the same training from a local facilitator. So we do things like that. Um, gotcha. The other thing that I can mention is that a couple of um, years ago, our firm took over the operations of Keras Intercultural Consulting. So Keras um, was a firm that was started about the same time as ours, maybe a couple of years earlier, um, run by an interculturalist named Marion Stetson Rodriguez. And so she um, is Silicon Valley based and worked with many uh, major Silicon Valley companies and, um, and specializing in cross-cultural training for a variety of different cultures. And she um, decided that she wanted to retire. And so our firm has taken over their operations. And so with that, we have their, um, their team of facilitators. So we are able to offer um, sort of general working globally as well as working with specific cultures for a variety of different cultures to clients in the US and elsewhere. And fantastic. One of the things I, I wanted to cover today was for the CEO or the appropriate person, I'll, I'll leave it more general, you know, within a company that is doing a work, let's say it's an American company in Japan or a Japanese company in the US or anywhere to anywhere, at what point uh, should a, um, an executive reach out to get help? The, the joke that we passed back and forth was one of my friends who uh, is a member of Global Chamber is working with a company in the US that was gonna start work in Taiwan and he asked me, hey, you know, they're working in Taiwan. Is there's like some sort of a help that they can get? Like, is there a company that can help them 
understand what's involved with that? Is, is that a thing? That was his question. And I said, mm -hmm. yes, that happens to be a thing. So yep. what, mm -hmm. what is that thing? You know, what, what do people buy? And when mm -hmm. should they be buying it? When should they know that, hey, we need to do something? The typical thing that we offer people is a seminar. And if you're like that company that's about to start working with people from a different culture, I would recommend that you get some training as soon as possible yeah. before you've had a chance to make any mistakes that you can't recover from, right? You want to Maybe get off on the, the right foot. Yeah, yeah before, exactly. Before you even sign the contract. I mean, they, they actually signed a contract and they probably had no idea, right? Um, so yeah. they waited way too long. It's like, no, we have an agreement and now we're sending people over. Maybe we better know a little bit about their culture. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You definitely want to know something before you send people. Unfortunately, I see so many companies that don't do training and they send people on business trips or they even send people on international assignments with no training, which to me is just amazing because when you're sending people on a business trip or you're having them move somewhere overseas, you're, as a company, you're making a tremendous investment. And also those individuals are making a personal investment too of their time. And particularly if someone's moving, they're disrupting their life, right? So it makes sense to do everything you can as a company to make sure that you are um, maximizing the potential that it will be successful, right? And so in the context of you know, how much you might be spending to be you know, sending someone on a business trip or having them move, what it costs to do a training is, is a very minimal expenditure compared to your overall investment. And it can make the difference between it working and not working. Same goes through for, um, for mergers and acquisitions. You know, there is a lot of research that shows that even between companies from the same culture, that most mergers and acquisitions that fail do so due to cultural differences. And if it's from the same um, country, it's corporate culture differences. But if you layer those corporate culture differences on top of national culture differences, you have a really, um, you know, sort of recipe, really, really strong recipe for having issues. And I see mergers and acquisitions that happen where companies have spent literally millions of dollars, in some cases, billions of dollars to do an acquisition and they of a country and I'm sorry of a company in a different country, and they don't invest in any cross-cultural training for their team members. No. And particularly, you know, the last um, 15 years, my U.S. base has been Silicon Valley, and in Silicon Valley, I've just seen some really, I find it just just um, gut-wrenching examples of Japanese companies that have done acquisitions in Silicon Valley did not do cultural training or didn't, didn't, um, let's say, didn't do it soon enough or to the right people and had their, their operation, the acquisitions fail and they end up closing the company that they acquired. Wow. I mean, wasting literally millions of dollars. It's incredible. And I'm like, okay, how to could have helped with that. <laughs> you know? huh. um, so it's very frustrating. 
certainly with anything M&A related or you're looking for an acquisition, that's, that's a signal that you should get help, right? I mean, that, that, that would be, um, what are some of the other signals that you know, should inspire someone to say, you know, you know, maybe we need a little bit of help here. Um, um, what are, besides m and well, I think expat, expat assignments you mentioned, I think to yes, some extent, expat right? assignments, you know, yeah. sort of a new client or yeah. a new supplier or a new partner that's from another culture uh -huh. that you're going to be, need to be working closely with. Anytime that happens, that's when you want to start to get prepared, right? So that, you know, starting new, any kind of new venture or new relationships or new business activity that involves, you know, people from another culture, that would be an important signal. Also, if you are already in that situation, but you are encountering issues. So for example, one client we worked with was a firm that had been acquired by a Japanese company 20 years ago prior. And when that, um, when that, um, that acquisition had been done, there hadn't been any cross-cultural training. There hadn't been any cross-cultural training the whole time. The company was experiencing a lot of issues and challenges, and they realized that some of them were due to poor communication with their parent company. And we went in and started working with them. And there was a backlog of 20, 20 years of buildup. It's like if you were a plumber and went into a pipe and it was kind of encrusted with stuff, right? So there was a lot of things that just needed to be worked through that had built up. So while the best thing is, is to sort of do preventative and not let anything build up like that, Sometimes you may already have been in the relationship for a while and there are issues and it makes sense to go back and clear some of that out that may have built up and, and, and prepare to have things go more smoothly in the future, right? The other thing that um, I think firms need to be thinking about is, you know, now we've got global companies and so maybe your inter interactions with people from other cultures aren't with customers or suppliers, but they could be with people from your own firm, right? And so your own firm's overseas subsidiaries, right? Uh -huh. And so we do a lot of work with firms and so helping them coordinate between people who are working in different locations. And so for example, I recently did work with the Japanese subsidiary of a firm that's based in the Netherlands. And, um, there's also regional management that are based in um, Singapore. And so was coordinating with people in the Netherlands and in Singapore and Japan and helping the people in Japan look at how to work with, they had some non-Japanese who were working in Japan. They had to interact with people in Singapore a lot. They often had to interact with people in the Netherlands. Those were a bunch of different cultures that they were dealing with. And so helping the Japanese um, think about how to be adjusting in different circumstances with different colleagues who had different backgrounds. So we do a lot of things like that with, in, within one company where you're working with across locations. Also with a lot of our customers, and we see this with a lot of our firms in the United States and also in Europe, this is a big thing. And it's starting to be more so in Japan, 
where you have people from various different countries as their backgrounds who are working in one location. Right. So now in Europe, you know, you really people because people are you know, move across the EU, you can have in one place in Europe, you can have people from you know, half a dozen different countries working together um, in the United States, because we attract talented people from all around the world. I can be working with a firm in Silicon Valley and the participants are from India and China and uh, Peru and Brazil and Portugal. You know, they'll be from all sorts of different places, Germany, you know, all in the same room, a whole group of people with varying different backgrounds, right? Um, and also recently in Japan, we find that um, a lot of our clients in Japan that are doing cutting edge software programming type work are hiring a lot of people globally. Yep. So it may be a Japanese company, but then they've got a team of people from all over the place. I mean, I've got clients in Tokyo that, that they're, the, the, the room looks like the United Nations and I'll ask managers in my session, so uh, where, where, where do your colleagues, where do your subordinates come from? And they're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm Japanese and I've got two Japanese team members and 16 people from other countries, you know. So I'm getting a lot of situations like that now um, where there's a lot of non-Japanese talent in Japan that people are um, working with closely. So really it kind of begs the question then, are certainly some of the people that you're dealing with are not really Japanese anymore or American anymore. There's some sort of their own, maybe it goes back to your point about they've developed their own culture and it could right. have multiple elements of different national cultures within their corporate culture. And so part of what right. you navigate and your team navigates is understanding some of that where they are and you've got somebody from Ukraine, you've got somebody from all these different countries, you're trying to get your head around you can't create now suddenly, hey, this person now can only be given Ukrainian type of stuff, right? It, it, they have to meld into this pot. And so right. you're probably seeing a lot more and more of that. Well, that's true. You're right. So I think there's two really important things in what you just said. One is that you've got diverse teams that need to figure out how to work together when people on the teams have various different personal backgrounds and preferences and styles, right? So we do a lot of work helping those teams. But the other important thing in, in what you just said is that we also have to be careful not to treat people as stereotypes. Because even within one culture, you're gonna have, I'm gonna say a little, make with my hands a bell curve here. You have a variety of, of, of people within a certain culture. So for example, certainly all people from the United States are not all the same. And every person you meet from China is not gonna be the same. There's gonna be varieties within cultures, just naturally. But also we have people now who themselves are multicultural that, people who have either different um, experiences of living in different places. Um, so you may have someone who's originally from Bolivia, but they've worked 10 years in the United States and then five years in Japan. And so then they're gonna have a variety of different influences on their style. You know, there are also people who moved at a younger age. And so maybe it's a Japanese person but then they went to the United States for high school and college, and then now they're back in Japan, right? So there's a lot of uh, you know, different people who have 
a variety of different experiences and influences. And so one thing that we do in our sessions is that we use cultural dimensions. So these are scales where, where you will look at um, opposite things on opposite side of the scale. So you might have um, risk seeking versus comfortable with risk. You might have um, direct communication versus indirect communication. Um, you might have very hierarchical versus very egalitarian. So we have all these scales and we help people um, put themselves on the scale using some quizzes that we have. So rather saying, well, you're American, you must be right here on the scale. Well, who are you as a person and what is your personal style? Because the first step to be able to work effectively with people from another culture is to be aware of what your own personal cultural style is. And then where you know where you are, then you can sense, so oh, here's where the gaps between, are between myself and another person. And then you can start to think about, well, what might I want to do to be bridging those gaps, right? Got it. You know, we've, we've, we've spoken here now for quite a number of minutes. And one of the things that I thought was going to come up prior to this was gender and gender balance. You as a woman, you know, especially in that, even probably as early as that first train wreck that you witnessed, recognize that women have a different place in the Japanese society historically. And that's, that's evolving, but certainly somewhat glacially, perhaps maybe more accelerated now. I don't know. How does that play into the work that you and your team does relative to whether it's US, Japan, or other cultures that have different uh, gender um, uh, def definitions, maybe is, is one of the ways. How, how do you deal with those kinds of things, especially when you're bringing people together that might have different thoughts about gender and other issues related to interpersonal relationships? Right. Well, I think the, the first thing I'll mention is, is that our firm does do a lot of work um, for our Japanese clients on topics along these lines. And so we've, it's yeah. really since our establishment have, have always done sexual harassment and discrimination prevention seminars. And so, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I don't know, we're probably one of the firms that has the longest history at this point, 27 years of doing, um, of doing sexual harassment and prevention seminars in Japanese. And so we, we have a really good sense of how to be effective doing that. And so that's just a long time offering that we've had. Um, more recently, I've been doing some work. I'm very interested in the concept of servant leadership and I've been doing a lot of servant leadership training for Japanese managers. I find that it servant leadership is particularly appealing to Japanese female managers. Um, and I've done, you know, sessions, lead, servant leadership sessions for only for um, female participants. And I found that in talking with them, a lot of women in Japan feel, I don't wanna manage the way that I was managed by my male bosses. I wanna have a leadership style that's my own, that's different. And they're looking for a model for that that they feel comfortable with. And so I find that the servant leadership one is one that often um, Japanese female leaders feel more comfortable stepping into as a model that they can relate to. So we've been doing work with that. It's been an issue of you know, kind of long-term interest for me. At the same time, I always want to um, encourage people to be careful. Um, as you just described, I think that there's an awareness outside of Japan of gender issues there. 
Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that, for example, an American woman can't work with the Japanese. I think I actually have an example that you can, right? Um, that I think that it's really important to not make assumptions, right? Um, and I think when I look at a lot of the media coverage outside of Japan about gender issues in Japan and the Japanese workplace, it's often very, very simplistic and doesn't understand a lot of the issues that are happening. I actually did a roundtable a few years ago with um, our clients in Japan. It was at a time when um, kind of this issue was getting renewed attention and I wanted to um, kind of get the feel from my clients of kind of what, what was on their minds. And so I had in the room HR people from a variety of large Japanese companies and also large foreign firms in Japan. And all names you would know, I don't feel at liberty to share them, but you know, you would be familiar with them. Well, I'll just tell you that. And so, and I asked them, you know, kind of what, what do you feel are the real issues um, for promoting more women in your workplaces or just issues in general? And um, really the very strong message I got from them was that a lot of the outright kind of discrimination has, is much, much less in Japan the no we won't hire women for this or no we won't promote women or that that kind of thing is is you know you're it's a lot harder to find i mean there's still some of it but there's much 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 less than there used to be what they felt was the real issue was um sort of the way that systems are set up from a male-centric point of view so, you know, the assumption that people can work out late, whereas that doesn't work if you're a woman who has small children, right? Um, the assumption that, that a lot of Japanese companies have, or the, there's actually a requirement if you're gonna be on the management track, that you be willing to move anywhere at the drop of a hat, which for understandable reasons, women with children are probably going to, or, or actually even if without children, there's women who are married to someone, are not going to be um, as interested or willing to do, right? Um, and so, um, I mean, that, that requirement would be something that in the US we would say is illegal for disparate impact, but it's, it's legal in the United and in, in Japan. Um, so there's a lot of things where just expectations of how you work and how work is designed is based on the sort of the assumption of the standard employee being a male employee. And so they felt that that was the much bigger issue for them than, than outright gender bias, right? Okay. And that's harder to change and it's more subtle and it doesn't make a great newspaper headline. But I just encourage people to be careful that, that what you've read about Japan might not be telling the whole story. Got it. Um, and is part of that also the companies attracting better talent? Um, and given that people are changing, um, certainly, you know, even in Japan, right? Young people have a different expectation around work and balance, uh, family work balance, that kind of thing. That, that's changing in Japan as well. 
Right, that's changing. And um, you're right, a lot of younger Japanese really don't want to get into that workaholic pattern that they saw their parents in, right? And so that is something that um, people are looking for more in choosing jobs, right? And it's on people's minds. And, you know, one of the key things we're going to see in Japan is already happening and it's going to become worse is scarceness of talent. And so if companies want to be attracting and retaining people, they're going to need to be more responsive to those new demands, right? Sure. So, so I think one of the things you've clearly illustrated here is just picking US, Japan, there's nearly an infinite number of ways you can wreck the train uh, on, on almost <laughs> yes. everything. And so that relates a little bit to one thing that I did want to bring up and ask you about, and that is um, how prolific you are in documenting information. I mean, I don't know how many books you have, but I know I've seen like in LinkedIn, many times you're saying, oh, my book about such and such is now available by whatever. You know, I don't think it's the same book that you're recycling over and over again. My sense is that you're someone who is constantly absorbing information on all these different things and then documenting and giving your opinion and giving your thought, not just in textual books like a like a, a textbook but also in a variety of ways in i think newspaper right yomiuri right, or yes, yes. um yes i do several um columns for japanese publications so i write regularly excuse me <clears throat> i'm a regular column that i've had for 10 years in the asahi shimbun okay. i also write for the nikkei sangyo which would be like the equivalent of the wall street journal um, I also have a new column that I started in HR Pro, which is a portal for a well-known portal for HR managers. Um, I do, it's kind of irregular, but I do um, write for Newsweek Japan's website and the Japan Times, which is an English language. And um, newspaper of all yeah. time. I love the Japan Times. I read it almost every- They do every a great job. They do a really yeah. great job, don't they? Um, my yeah. editor there is fabulous. Um, and also I write for Teikoku Data Bank, which is kind of like the Dun and Bradstreet of Japan. I write something for their internal customer focused magazine. So I do do a lot of writing. Yes, I like to write, so that's fine. What, what keeps you going? I mean, is it just constant? I mean, because of all these changes, you want to stay current? I mean, what drives you these days? Well, you know, I definitely like to stay current and there's a lot going on. And so, you know, in the past, year I've been, you know, of course, fascinated by the coronavirus and then, you know, how society and businesses react to that. So I've been doing a lot of that with that. And so I just, um, I love knowing what's happening. I love responding to it. And the more I understand what's going on in the world, the more that I can help my clients to deal with it. And so, you know, for example, in this past year with remote work, and challenges with that. And there's some cultural differences and challenges with remote work. Um, so helping clients with that has been really interesting. So you know, my role is just to be useful. And part of the way I'm useful is by just being uh, on top of what's happening. Uh, very, very impressive. What's next? What, what is it that you want to be involved in kind of in the, in the next phase? Is it more of the same or do you have some other aspirations? Um, definitely more of the same. So I'm really enjoying all the stuff that I'm doing and love helping clients. And so just want to keep doing that. 
You mentioned Silicon Valley earlier, uh, prior to the pandemic, I, I think you were mainly based there, right? But then during the pandemic, you ended up in Fukuoka and maybe now you're in Tokyo. So you, you have kind of a, certainly a mainly Japan US focus at this point in terms of lifestyle. Right, that's correct, yeah. And before, before the pandemic, I was kind of going back and forth. Um, and you know, recently in spending increasing amounts of time in Japan because I'm also an independent um, board member for two Japanese companies. And they like you to be in Japan um, for that. It's just logistically makes more, more sense. And so I've been spending increasingly amounts of Japan time in Japan due to that. But then with the coronavirus, I'm just kind of staying put here for now. <laughs> oh, so you are US, but, yeah. yeah, but for a while I'm gonna I'm gonna have I'll have this be my primary base for for the time being. And um, my US base is Silicon Valley, yes, and I have a home there. Okay, very good. Well, hope I hope to to see you there someday. I would imagine uh, eventually it will uh, it will pass, and you'll be able to get back and back and forth. Uh, well, I think we're all looking forward to the day when that happens, right? We don't know when it's going to be though, but. Well, that, I was just on the on a Zoom call to 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 Australia, and I think maybe recently Brisbane was announced as the Olympic site for 2032. And yes, somebody was. was joking that the Australian Prime Minister had announced that they expect to have COVID under control by the opening games of uh, <laughs> in, in Brisbane. So hope, hopefully, it's way before that. Uh, yeah, really. And uh, I think hopefully we can expect that. And so I would say, I mean, just amazing work that you're doing, just so impressive. There's so many levels of, of knowledge that you need to have just even between two cultures, let alone, you know, 195 countries and then having even different, you know, multiple cultures often within those, those countries. So I, we do need to wrap it up. I'd love to go for the next several hours and just kind of, <laughs> We keep going, but maybe just in conclusion, let us let us know, you know, uh, in terms of the things that you've seen in, in your career and in your life, you know, um, how do we help companies more? What would you like to see more from executives that are either in Japanese companies or American companies or in other companies? What would you like them to do more and more of so that we can be more successful and have less train wrecks? Right. I think it's I think generally the basic thing is to realize that culture is a thing, that it is important, that it can make a really big difference. So it's something important to learn about and be as prepared as possible. One of my own learnings after spending time and working in Japan for several years was coming back and then it was with the DuPont company, a chemical company. And then we did an acquisition where part of the Dow chemical company was merged in. And so everybody mm -hmm. thought, well, gee, you know, here's two chemical companies just merging in mm -hmm. is like no big deal. You alluded to this earlier about corporate culture. It turned out there were quite a number of differences just between two similar companies. They had, right. they had, different, they had different cultures. And so I would think that what you're finding or what you found over the last 20 plus years is that people are more sensitive, not just to, to country cultures, but also to corporate cultures. I hope right. that's the case. And so what you're saying is people, 
you know, whether it's a merger and acquisition, whether it's a deal, whether it's a, a multinational team that you're leading, these are all good reasons to get engaged with you. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, because those are all places where we can help. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. What's what's the rest of the day look like? Are you going to watch any Olympics today or in the next uh, 17 days? Oh, uh, probably not because I don't have a TV. <laughs> I don't oh. sit around and watch TV ever, so I'm probably not going to be. Um, um, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna get out of Tokyo this evening because it's the infection numbers are rising here, and I'd like to just not be around. So I'm gonna. Oh go my! And and no one, no one's allowed even nationals to attend the events. No, no, you can't attend events anyway. So, um, oh my. the 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 aerial the the Japanese equivalent of the Blue Angels flew flew over my place um, two days ago in their practice run. So I might get to see them again this afternoon when they do the real thing. Sort of on their way to the Olympic Stadium, they went over my place. I got a couple of good pictures, but. <laughs> well, ho hopefully that no, might be cultural, about it. no cultural faux pas. Uh, uh, one of the great things about Olympics is that you get all these people together and it typically is a kumbaya type of a situation. And unfortunately, we're probably not going to get as much of that as we no, really no, we aren't. Yeah. So let's let's go to the next Olympics. But thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're incredibly sure. busy. You probably have about five articles that you have deadlines on coming up. I do. But definitely, <laughs> I do. So. Def definitely have Rochelle Cop in your Rolodex and Japan Intercultural and the intercultural work that they do with all different sorts of cultures, including in Taiwan and others. Rochelle, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks so much. Always great talking with you. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks everybody hey, for joining thanks. us. Bye-bye.